silence in us any voice but your own gracious God. And into that silence speak the truth of your grace and the truth of your mercy and the truth of your love and the truth of your hope. That hearing your word we might be called to follow and by following we might be transformed. For we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Our gospel lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Matthew, the first 14 verses of the 22nd chapter. Let us hear God's word. Once more Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Look, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main streets, and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, have you ever noticed a large rock just out there between the chapel and the sanctuary entrances with a weathered plaque on it? If you have, have you any idea what that plaque says? In honor of Charles G. Finney, evangelist, educator, and Christian statesman, who by his spiritual ministry in Rochester in 1830, 1842, and 1855, transformed the lives of thousands and made this a better city for all time. A better city for all time. In this year of stewardship, I've been thinking a great deal about how we are stewards of our stories. Our own stories, yours and mine, and the stories of community in this place. How do we nurture stories so they can have important meaning for us as we move ahead? Not just nostalgia, 
but crucial source material as we live into our future. And as we mark 190 years of ministry as Third Presbyterian Church, I've been thinking a great deal about those who have gone before us. Whether they have their names on plaques or in session minute books, or whether their contributions included singing an alto line or teaching a child or watching, washing a dish. So, this is not a history lecture about Charles Finney, which might not even be of sustainable interest to me. And yet, Finney's legacy is part of the story we steward. The lens he represents is reflected in Third Church's DNA and in the DNA of our region. Some years back, Third Church hosted a Finney Festival, and the organizers presented us with this portrait. Perhaps you've seen it. He's not exactly a guy you'd want to share wings and a Bills game with. <laughs> Which is kind of part of the point. Finney was a leader, if not the leader, of a moment in American history roughly 1825 to 1835 called the Second Great Awakening, represented by massive, massive revivals. And our region became known as something called the Burned Over District, signifying the intense fire of conversion that the Holy Spirit delivered across upstate New York. Rochester was the national epicenter of this religious and cultural and economic and political movement. Historian Charles Hambrick Stowe writes that Finney and Rochester acquired symbolic power as news of these revivals reached far and wide. Now remember a moment, anyway, your high school history class. So many things were happening in that time. The, the Jackson presidency, a new nation finding its legs and identity, westward expansion, the Erie Canal, industrial development, the increasing democratizing and popularizing of American religion, the ongoing plagues of racism and sexism and xenophobia. Charles Finney was a Presbyterian who never fully embraced Presbyterianism, either its, to him at least, stodgy style, and equally as important to him at least, its stern Calvinist emphasis on grace that felt to Finney at least as if it let us off the hook. And for six months, in 1830, he was this congregation's preacher. And while here led daily revivals in the city and in the region that drew and converted thousands. Now he got here by being invited by church and civic leaders who felt that the city needed the moral cleansing that only Finney could deliver. And that six months here got us the Finney Rock. It also gets us a steady stream of researchers and devotees who are often disappointed to learn that this pulpit was not Finney's actual pulpit, nor was this building the building he actually preached in. 
or that we have no extensive archives on him. They're even more distressed to learn that when given the opportunity to invite Finney back to Third Church in the 1850s, the session declined. They were very wary of his revivalist approach. And we might be wary as well. Charles Finney helped launch a new, distinctively American form of religion, evangelicalism. Evangelicalism was personal. It was emotional. It called for individual conversion. It reached beyond the wealthy who established congregations to the laborers, the workers, those of more modest means. Paul Johnson's classic volume on this era, which we have quoted on the bulletin cover, summarizes it well. The revivalists, Finney and his cohort, believed that the unregenerate, that's their term, not mine, the, the unregenerate, who had yet to have a religious experience, were just waiting for the right moment. They drank too much, they smoked too much, they did other things too much. But if they could just find their way to revival, then watch out. Two things were going on at the same time. One was stylistic. The use of emotion in a very public setting, including something called an anxious bench or an anxious seat upon which the unconverted sat during this public revival until the enormity of their sin became so great, so fully understood, they converted on the spot, often collapsing in tears. Literally, Finney and his fellow evangelical revivalists sought to scare the hell out of you by putting the fear of God into you. And yet that stylistic approach was undergirded by a new kind of theology, sometimes called perfectionism. Holy living, yes. Maturing in faith, yes. Walking closer and closer with God each day, yes. But the rub came for more traditional Calvinists, Presbyterians, who believed that Finney and others were promoting doctrine and behavior that contradicted the notion of salvation by faith alone. A hallmark since Luther espoused it 500 years and 15 days ago. Anything that smacked of a person doing anything to achieve their own salvation, seeking unduly to influence God and eternal matters, was a red flag. And certainly Finney's anxious bench and calls to conversion did that, at least to those earlier Calvinists. Paul Johnson writes that Finney's revival techniques aroused controversy because they transformed conversion from a private to a public and intensely social event. Now I tend to think the problem was at least as much about style as substance that old-school Presbyterians in Rochester and elsewhere were simply put off by emotional worship and probably also jealous of the crowds Finney attracted. Because theologically, the issue of salvation by faith versus salvation by works was not a new one. 
And it's somehow even mixed in the Bible when you read through it. I believe we all need conversion. Conversion that's not primarily about moral behavior. Conversion that in general is not a one-time and done deal. Certainly not a, a public deal, but rather an ongoing process of being called and called again and called again back to God. And after all, some personal spiritual response can only be a good thing as long as it's framed in an intentional way. But conversion does call us to response. And faith is never a solely individualized endeavor. Gaps in the evangelical approach, critics said then. Finney was not unlike any iconic historical figure, however. Both not fully what he was made out to be by his critics and more complex than any one interpretation allows. For example, Finney expressed deep appreciation for Calvinist theology, even as he was labeled an anti-Calvinist. He was a pastoral and relational and prayerful and faithful colleague among colleagues, even as it appeared from his demeanor that he was drilling right into your soul. And one important thing more, one important thing more, but first a little detour. We've just heard another spot-on Jesus parable from Matthew's Gospel, the well-known story of a wedding banquet. The king invites so many of the usual suspects, the rich and famous, to his son's wedding, they do not come, they have other plans, so he sends his workers out into the city, to the main streets of the city, whatever that means, to invite others to come. They gathered all they find, both good and bad, both good and bad, we're told. Now, the story takes an odd and troubling turn. There's a guest deemed not to be dressed properly, but this morning, anyway, can we focus on that act? The act of going in the streets and inviting all. For that king, the walls were permeable. Between the royal court and the main streets of the city, between the so-called good and the so-called bad, permeable walls for this king. Permeable walls for Charles Finney. And I hope permeable walls for us. Because despite our skepticism about the style and substance of revivalism and perfectionism, despite so many things we would consider now in our interpretation of Finney and his ministry, despite our own understanding of what evangelical means, despite this and despite that, this is part of our story. That Finney believed in permeable walls. That Finney came to Rochester not only to save souls, but to change lives. That he reached out to the working poor when the upper class churches wouldn't. That his list of ethical concerns mattered, including temperance and Sabbath observance. And we rarely talk about those anymore, but alcohol consumption and the seven-day work week were social and ethical problems adversely affecting the life of Rochester's working class. 
And Finney's permeable walls extended even to our concerns. He was an early abolitionist, opposing slavery. And when he went to teach and then serve as president of Oberlin College, the college became a stop on the Underground Railroad. Oberlin was the first mixed-gender college in the U.S., women and men learning together, and perhaps even more importantly to our story, when Finney was in Rochester, women provided much of the leadership for his revivals and even prayed publicly in mixed-sex gatherings. That was radical, radical socially, radical religiously. As I noted, decades later, the session of this congregation declined to invite Finney back to Rochester to speak at Third Church because they were wary of his revival technique. I think that was a mistake, and probably not the only mistake a Third Church session has made in 190 years. But what I like to remember is that litany, race, gender, poverty, those examples of permeable walls that insist that the church is not just, as Thyru, our Kenyan pastor, partner, friend, reminded us last week, a museum for the saints, not even just a hospital for the sinners, but a place to gather us in and then to send us out. Our concerns might not be temperance or Sabbath observance, but they certainly include race and gender and newer articulations, war and peace, LGBTQ rights, poverty, hunger and housing, public education. Finney and his era might be bewildered by how some of this looks, but I pray they would resonate with what our ministry represents, its commitments and its vision. And I hope we are discerning enough to make the right connections, to embrace the helpful and to leave behind the unhelpful, to connect the dots from the earliest moments of our history when we realize that the king does not invite only the royal court but the whole kingdom, to a moment some 190 or so years ago when we sought to do the same with this unique and iconic figure right down to our moment as we think about walls and the community that exists beyond these walls and on our best days erases any understandings between them and us between good and bad I was trying to envision a conclusion Maybe a musical, Charles Finney. My name is Charles Finney. Okay, maybe not. <laughs> maybe a simple prayer of gratitude for Finney and all the saints who have gone before us, the giants on whose shoulders we stand, warts and all, as we recommit ourselves now to be the church that invites all people, all people, to a glorious and spectacular wedding banquet. Amen. <laughs>